This is Bob Cutmore. Thanks for listening to the Historian's Podcast. Honestly, we could use a little financial help. If you can see your way clear to sending a donation, it would help us continue our weekly audio podcasts on history. Send a check made out to Nero Publishing to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Or Facebook or tweet me or email me at bobcudmore at yahoo.com for more information. We want to keep those historians' podcasts going, and we need your help to do so. Now, on with the show. We welcome composer, pianist, and singer Maria Riccio Bryce of Amsterdam to the historians. How are you, Maria? I'm in great shape, Bob. How are you? And happy new year. Well, happy new year to you. Our main point is to let our audience know that one of Maria's major works, the musical Hearts of Fire, once again available on CD, we'll have order information in uh, just a bit, and we're going to hear a song from the musical uh, before the program's over. Hearts of Fire is about the Schenectady Massacre of 1690. I know they do musicals about serious topics, but how did that particular story end up as your musical? Well, it's kind of a long story, and I, I, frankly, I'd like your listeners to know I consider Hearts of Fire to be my magnum opus, my major work, and it kind of fell into my lap. Um, in the late 90s, Proctor's Theater used to hire me to direct their once-a-year Christmas extravaganzas. They used to put on a Christmas show starring the organist, the late, great Alan Mills. And they hired me to turn what was basically a kind of boring two-hour thing of a guy sitting at an organ and playing Christmas favorites into a sort of Radio City musical kind of um, entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I guess they liked what I did because the then artistic director of Proctor's, Dennis Madden, suggested to me, um, you know, we're coming up on the 300th anniversary of the Schenectady Massacre. This was in 1990 now. Mm-hmm. So the massacre was 1690. So actually, at the end of 89, Dennis Madden said to me, the massacre will celebrate, or we will celebrate its 300th anniversary. Why don't you think about creating something in its honor? Mm. Bob, I knew I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing on your program entitled The Historians, because I'm not an historian <laughs> right. at all. Um, and I basically knew nothing about the massacre except that it had occurred. Yes. And maybe just a little background, and maybe I'm on thin ice as well. It's an early colonial settlement attacked by uh, Indians allied with the French and the French uh, in, in 1690 and and. Many were killed, many were spared. As a real, That's exactly uh, right. Uh, they, they were based in Montreal, and it was the French who recruited the Indians. And the original plan was they were going to march all the way down and, and attack Albany. However, rumor has it, and rumor reached them, that the Schenectady Fortress was singularly unprepared and wide open. So at the very last minute, they changed direction and attacked the sleeping village of Schenectady, and it was February 8th, 1690. There was a snowstorm of legendary proportions. I imagine similar to the one that's wending its way towards us right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And they attacked in dead of night, 
no warning, all the villagers came tumbling out of their homes and were slaughtered. I think they lost half the inhabitants of the village, and many of the uh, survivors were then summarily marched to Montreal. Mm. Uh, it was it was scandalous in its brutality, and what I'll cut to the chase. What what really grabbed me as a composer when I read the story and I I did the bit of research that I did. What astonished me was that through all the heartache and destruction of that night, of that massacre, the survivors decided to stay Mm -hmm. and rebuild, and that was no mean feat. And I found that so inspiring um, that it kind of led me to... I drew a a strange um, sort of... uh, comparison to my own life at the time. I was living back in Amsterdam, New York, where I'd been born and raised after a hiatus of 10 years in London, running a theater and living a very sophisticated, glamorous life as an artist, as an actress, Mm -hmm. theater director, musician. And fate would have it that I ended back here. And I'll be honest, Bob, I had not yet made my peace with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But... At the same time that I received the commission to write Hearts of Fire, my beloved father, uh, Peter Riccio, was unexpectedly diagnosed with, with a with terminal cancer. So at the time that I'm writing, I'm tending to him, and his he was such a stage father. <laughs> he, was, he wanted so badly for me to come up with something that would inspire others and so it became something that he and i almost did together that uh, my kids would go to mcnulty school Uh, my middle my eldest was at uh, middle school at that time and i'd write and then in the afternoon i'd go up to see my father and i'd sing to him in his home what i'd written that day Mm. and in his particularly uh stage fatherish inimitable way he would rave to me it's beautiful it's wonderful <laughs> you've got it which would inspire me to the next day to do the exact same thing so it became a, a, a it was a life changer for me and i i um i hear him in it every time i listen to it well i've, I've heard the show i mean i went to see the show in this uh <clears throat> was done back in 1990 or 1991. I mm-hmm. guess it was done in both years. And I've seen your other programs, and you uh, are able to uh, transmit such emotion in your work. And it seems to me you're, you were onto something. I don't know if I'm sounding like your father did, but I mean, <laughs> it, the point is that, you know, it's, a, it's what a story this, this was, and it does, you know, and it related to you, and it, it relates to all of us, really. Well, you know, what I—if you remember it at all—it begins with um, two characters, uh, one old man on his deathbed with his nephew, as I called it, and the nephew is pleading with the old man, "Don't leave me, please, don't die," and the old man saying, "There's so much more than me and you." Hmm. There's your heritage behind you, and there's the future about to come that you must make, you must help create. Hmm. And so that was the umbrella on which I hung the whole story. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of songs in there I wrote directly for my father. um, And, you know, he, the recording that is available now on CD was from the second year's production in 1991. Uh, the one I'm talking about was 1990. My father passed just two months after Hearts of Fire was performed the first time, but he was in a box 
seat, Bob. Yes, he was. <laughs> and um, he, um, I think he would have so loved to hear the music over and I can just see how he would have played it and played it and played it. But yes, there's so much that I was, I thought about, um, uh, you know, just the responsibility we have to our homes. And when they are threatened, if we've been sort of haphazard about them before, suddenly we can see the absolute utter value of what we have and we hold to it so tightly. Mm. And that's how I ended up really at the end of it feeling delighted that I live exactly where I live. It honestly changed my life. And the productions featured a large cast, 60 people? 60 people. The youngest member of the cast, I kid you not, was three weeks old. And the eldest member was a gentleman in his late 70s. And, uh, oh, I had such wonderful talent. Um, in the first production, my sister Sophie played the lead role of Anna van der Bogart. And my dearest lifelong friend, John Allen, played uh, Jan Spoors, who's po who plays opposite him, her. My son, Andrew, plays the pivotal character of young Samuel, through whose eyes the whole massacre occurs, the whole story. And he is, in fact, the, the old man dying on the deathbed, because we see the, his whole, the panorama of his life. And then and all my kids were in it. My sister Connie played the laboring woman. <laughs> it was a. It really was a, a family affair. And I do. I do want to tell you this because to me it seems like the absolute ultimate blessing. In 1990, when we reprised the production, I had told my producer, my then husband Alan, I'm only going to do it again if um, we get the soundtrack properly, professionally recorded. Mm -hmm. That was my caveat. And he uh, rather unwillingly agreed. But listen to this. We went along to do it, and we decided to go with Cathedral Sound Studio in Rensselaer. Mm -hmm. And the sound engineer we were assigned to was the premier sound engineer in the Capital District. His name was Ralph Sherry. Mm -hmm. So Ralph Sherry's got all these microphones in this recording studio with 60 cast members recording the entire uh, score. Then they all go away, and it's, it's the two of us, Ralph the engineer and me the composer, in the studio mixing all the tracks. Mm. And on the second track, my sister Connie has a one-line solo. And she sang the solo, her voice, came through the sound studio room we were in, and Ralph Sherry turned on his little studio stool to me and said, that Connie, is that her name? She's uh, beautiful. Uh, and not only do you think she was beautiful, but they got married, right? They did. That's how they met. Yeah. And they uh, unless met Ralph Sherry has passed they away. They have but... two wonderful sons, both students at Clarkson right now. Sadly, uh, Ralph passed three years ago. He was one of the finest human beings I've ever known, Bob, and just the miracle of, of her, him hearing her voice in my song and recognizing her beauty and having that all come down. To me, it felt it was further evidence of, of a divine hand, and I'm, I'm so proud of that. And again, one of the reasons I wanted to make sure I preserved the soundtrack because, was because of Ralph. His work was so stunning on it, and I wanted that to be in the world. 
So there you well, go. But what a story, isn't it? It is. And why? before we go on, let me ask you, I mean, how can people get the CD? Is it stores, also by mail order? Yes, it's in. It's for sale in, in four venues, two in Schenectady and two in Amsterdam. You can purchase it at the Open Door in Schenectady and at the Proctor's Gift Center. That's right in the Proctor's Arcade. If you happen to be attending a show at Proctor's, you'll find it there. And in Amsterdam, it's at the Bookhound and at the Old Peddler's Wagon. Or I took a leaf out of your book from a long time ago. I have a little post office box. Mm-hmm. And anyone interested in purchasing it could send me a check or money order, order to that box. It's right at the Amsterdam Post Office. It's P.O. Box 66. And you know our zip is 12010. And the cost is $21. It's two CDs. Um, it's over two hours of music. It comes with a 12-page uh, booklet, which tells the story of how I came to write Hearts of Fire. It's got a couple of photographs, and it has the entire cast list from both productions, 1990 and 91, and a full list of all the songs. We're talking with Maria Riccio Bryce from Amsterdam. She is the composer. Uh, of uh, Hearts of Fire, which was produced in 1990 to mark the 300th anniversary of the Schenectady Massacre. You've kind of uh, gotten into this some, but you, uh, about, uh, but you have a very interesting life. Uh, I'd just like to walk <laughs> you, through with, with you. You're a native of uh, Amsterdam, I believe the eldest of the four Riccio sisters. That's right. You know, I think some of your listeners who are at least as old as I might remember, I was, um, well, I consider myself very blessed in that at my great age, I look back and, and realize, I think I truly had a vocation. Uh, and by that, I mean similarly to, I feel I was called to something. And I think I knew that, and my piano teacher knew that. I was taught by the late, great Marion Rulison, mm-hmm. who lived at 72 Arnold Avenue. And she became my teacher because my stage fatherish father, <laughs> my ambitious father, asked all around Amsterdam and wanted to know who was the strictest piano teacher in town. Ah. Because his idea was it has to be someone strict or my daughters are so lazy they're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> he was told over and over again, Mary, Marianne Rulison, kids leave there in tears. So that's where we went. Bob, she, I teach piano myself now in my home, so I often wonder, she, I'm certain that she saw extremely early that whatever she set me to do, the next week when I'd come back from my next lesson on a Saturday morning in her home, I had it done and more. I was so avid, I couldn't get enough. Once she started me on that path, I there was no worry mm-hmm. about my practicing. I loved to play. Kind of reminds me of uh, like so uh, Billy Joel. I'm sorry. What's that? Uh, Bi- I'm sorry. Billy Joel's like the piano man. You're the piano woman. I mean, as, as you go yeah. through the grades, <laughs> well, you're always playing the piano. Me, uh, by the time I got to uh, Theodore Roosevelt Junior High School, they used to call me out to play the piano at assemblies like the Star Spangled Banner and so forth. So they used to call me that girl that plays the piano, which, of course, I was thrilled to be known as. So. <laughs> 
But anyway, um, yes. Um, Then I discovered the theater and musical theater uh, specifically, and I began to hound my sisters because we did used to, uh, in our own way, be a little bit like the Von Trops. I would play the piano, and my three sisters would sing. And then I said, you know, we could, we could, we could do this. We could, we could go around town, and people could hear us. And they were extremely reluctant, but I was very pushy, <laughs> very bossy, and they didn't tell me no. And before you knew it, we, I used to get gigs for us, like things like the Rotary Club and, um, and uh, Zonta Club, that sort of thing, old age homes. Mm-hmm. But I loved it. And I we did it all the way through until I went off to college. And I know my sisters were extremely relieved that I had to <laughs> abort any further bookings of the Riccio sisters when I left a, the area. another kind of Amsterdam uh, angle uh, that I'd like to explore with you, and that's uh, Kirk Douglas. Your father was a good friend of Kirk Douglas, and uh, that's not not true of everybody in Amsterdam. But he, your father, was, and you had a, a bit of an interaction with uh, uh, with Kirk Douglas uh, yourself, in that you uh, were one of uh, Bert DeRose's uh, drama students, and you won their Kirk Douglas Award. I did, I did, and I received a letter from him. That was in uh, 1968. And I won for playing Anita in West Side Story. And uh, Kirk Douglas and I, uh, on, on a few occasions, I've asked him for help extremely modestly. Um, but he made it extremely clear that whatever I needed, he was there for. And I think we had a very unique relationship in that he never failed to tell me and our interactions, how much my father altered his destiny, because it was my father, Peter. They graduated together from Amsterdam High School, and my father went to St. Lawrence University. And Kirk, Izzy as he was then, was left behind, and he was working in Lurie's, and he was the only son with all those daughters. And my father came home after his freshman year and said, you've got to get out of here. You can go with me. I can get you in. I talked to the dean. And my father used to say that Mrs. Dembski was extremely reluctant to let him go. But my father went down there and made some impassioned speech, and she finally said, okay. And that's the famous story, how the two of them hitchhiked uh, the following September up to Canton, New York, to St. Lawrence, and they got a ride at the back of a fertilizer truck, which was featured when my father appeared on This Is Your Life way back when, mm-hmm. the 50s with Kirk. Um, but, now, yeah, uh, so um, to- Kirk Douglas told me, if your father hadn't insisted, I don't know what I would have done, but it looked like I was just staying put. Now, back to your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and jump in when it, it becomes uh, too a little of a summary. Uh, you uh, got the Riccio sisters. You eventually go to college, Manhattanville College, I believe. I think you do some summer stock, and then you go over to uh, England, and uh, you and um, Alan Bryce, uh, you operate a theater over there, do you not? That's right. I met Alan on uh, my first season of summer stock at Western Playhouse, Western Vermont, and he was a very charming Englishman. And both of us want to be actors. And so, Bob, I'm embarrassed to say, almost the minute I graduated from Manhattanville College, I took off my cap and gown and went to London. Mm. And we were, we joined the ranks of out-of-work actors, along with millions of others. 
And it just so happened that one night we were, we were all having dinner, a bunch of out-of-work actors and us, and the actor, a, a fellow actress's husband, who was, I remember he was a fireman, and unlikely, he said, you guys are always complaining. Why don't you do something? Why don't you start your own theater if nobody's going to hire you? He kind of said it in jest, but when everyone went away, Alan and I said, you know, why don't we? And we, we, we were young, 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 young. I think I was 24 or 5. But we, we set about doing such a thing, and we only really thought that we'd get a, a, a venue for three or four months to showcase our own gifts and those of our friends because it's like a catch-22 in the theater. You have to have an equity card to get a job, but in order to get a, a job, you have to have an equity card. So we were hoping that we would get some agents out and make that happen, but un we were blown away by it. it just so happened that our theater just took off. And those are the days in the 70s in London when fringe theater, it's sort of like off-Broadway, but mm -hmm. it was the big thing. And by within a decade, we were the premier fringe theater in London. And we did, we, we produced all kinds of new work. We rubbed elbows with all kinds of leading lights. And we thought we had a great life. And then Margaret Thatcher was elected, and almost all government subsidies were seriously cut. Our theater took a huge hit, and we made an agonized decision, but we decided to come back to the States. Mm. So I had the uncommon experience of returning to my own country like an immigrant. We sold off all our belongings, and we had enough for plane tickets. I had two young sons and a third, get this, in utero. You have to be this, you have to be young to be this dumb, Bob. <laughs> we, just, we just took our chances and we came. My parents allowed us to, to set up a base at Northampton Road, the home where I was raised. Actually, I think they were rather thrilled because suddenly this, the house is full of young kids. And um, my son, my youngest son, Peter, who's named for my father, was born at St. Mary's a few months later. And then uh, Alan got a job at the Kennedy Center, so we went to D.C., where we were for a year, and that didn't quite work out. And then that brings me to the point of the tale that we started. We ended up back at Amsterdam, and I was really devastated. Mm -hmm. And it took me... And you, uh, it, yeah, and your husband then was working at Proctor's, and you did the show... He at, was indeed. Uh, That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, but you did a show, uh, Hearts of Fire, in 1990-91, uh, in which your father's much involved, but you did a show a couple years before that, A Mother I'm Here, that, that uh, is a tribute to your own mother. Yes, that was my first, um, my first real breakthrough in, in upstate New York. Is I don't really know how they got my name, but I was contacted by the Schenectady YWCA, and they, what they wanted was they didn't specify anything, they, she, the person I talked to said to me, I've heard that you're a really creative uh, actor, musician sort of thing. We're looking for something with which to mark our 100th anniversary. And rather than having a, a, a great big dinner dance, we thought we would, we would kind of commission a local woman to create that. Hmm. So I had... I was kind of amazed to be called by them, and I had no idea what really to do. When all of a sudden, I was—I can see myself now, and I was in my early 30s. I was driving down the throughway, and it was the autumn. And I saw the the way the leaves looked, just the 
I don't know, the nature of change and so forth. And I started humming something. And I said, hey, wait a minute. You know what? You know what? You know what? Wait a minute. You could write a musical. You could finally do what you said you're supposed to be doing, which is write a musical. You could do it. (laughs) This is your chance. And once I got that idea, Bob, and I really, again, I, I told you I feel I have a vocation. I felt this this inspiration, and my entire family got behind it. My, my Peter had just started kindergarten, so I used to walk him up to McNulty again, throw him in there, run home and write, and then go pick them up. But that's right. I, I came up with Mother, I'm Here. It's a, it's a review on the subject of womanhood, and mm-hmm. it premiered at Proctor's. It was a one-off production for them, for the YWCA, and I must say it was a resounding hit. And so much so that we did it again at the Egg in 1992. Mm -hmm. But I I can't remember how many songs. It seems so long ago now, but it's a whole cycle from from birth to the end of your life, and it's all about my take on motherhood and womanhood. Unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time. The Mm -hmm. third piece, your third piece in the trilogy, really of the the big musical productions, is the Amsterdam Oratorio. Not enough time really to get into that, but that came. That was produced right. in 2001. And that's exactly how I feel about it. I have those three. I have three sons, Duncan, Andrew, and Peter, and I have three major works: Mother, I'm Here, Hearts of Fire, and the Amsterdam Oratorio. So that's a lovely way to round it out. Now, Maria Ricky O'Brien, we're going to uh, close this edition of the Historians with a song from uh, Hearts of Fire. And you told us, I believe, a little bit about this, but can you just kind of set up what we're going to hear, which is the song uh, Be Not Afraid? And, it, and this is one of your sisters singing it. Is that right? Yes. This, uh, I wrote Be Not Afraid. It's basically, it's a woman laboring and giving birth to a daughter. And why I wanted to write it is because as I was writing Hearts of Fire, and I told you it had a, I was trying to equate my own struggles to how it must have been 300 years previously, it occurred to me what that must be like in the dead of winter. No epidurals, Bob. The laboring woman is played by my sister Connie, and she's the one who's the sound engineer, Ralph Sherry, heard her sing and said, that Connie, she's beautiful. Life's so hard, you know it is. I can't take care. Oh, oh. The pain and agony will fly away when you hear your sweet baby cry. Oh, help me, my afraid. In the shadows of the Around you, 
CDs of Maria Riccio Bryce's Hearts of Fire, available at Old Peddler's Wagon and the Bookhound in Amsterdam, Proctor's Gift Shop and the Open Door in Schenectady, or by mail for $21 at Box 66, Amsterdam 12010. This is Bob Cudmore. You've been listening to The Historians.